Switch to Spectrum Mobile and get unlimited data for only $29.99 per month each when you get two or more lines. You can save hundreds on your mobile bill. Plus, there are no added taxes, hidden fees, and no contracts. Click to try the Spectrum Mobile Savings Calculator, and in three easy steps, you'll see how much you can save. Visit SpectrumMobile.com slash save. Offer valid for new customers on two or more unlimited lines. Spectrum Internet required. Restrictions apply. Visit SpectrumMobile.com for details. Amen. I want to just deal with the topic today that I believe is very applicable, very relevant to what a lot of Christians are going through in their spiritual journey. I want to talk about entering rest. Entering rest. I'm going to unpack some things today, I believe, that will help you to be able to move forward to that place that God has for you in Christ in terms of experiencing everything that the new covenant has made available to us. How many know that we are not waiting on God to do anything anymore? You believe that? Yeah, it's true. You know why? Because Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says we have we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have been blessed. Past tense with how much blessing? All spiritual blessings or every spiritual blessings. Second Peter 1:3 says that God has given to us in old King James Elizabethan English, he hath given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He has done it. He's given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And just as the children of Israel were given the promise that Canaan, the promised land, would be theirs, there's still a requirement, though, to go in and to occupy, to possess by faith and obedience the promises of God. So there's a big difference when we realize and we have that revelation and understanding who God is and what he's already promised us, what he's done, what he's made available at the cross. And so instead of, you know, there's one thing that concerns me is when we talk about revival, revival is absolutely biblical. It's something God wants us to experience. I think it was Charles Finney that said years ago, though, a revival presupposes a declension. In other words, if something needs revived, guess what? If you need to revive a person, what does that say about the person? Okay. So, revival presupposes a declension. Revival presupposes that there's something or someone that needs resuscitated. So, we have to recognize that. So, when we talk about revival, we're saying we need life. And we are talking about the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. But He's already given to us Everything that we have need of, but we have to learn to possess it by faith. And so instead of waiting for revival, we need to start releasing our faith and experiencing the present reality of God's riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's good preaching. Whether you believe it or not. God wants us to experience everything that he's made available to us. So I want to talk about how we do that this morning, entering rest. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is our text. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm just going to read two verses in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse number 2 and 3. Let me kind of uh, give us the historical backdrop here. Deuteronomy is a book that was written literally at the end of Israel's 40 years of wandering. God is about to bring them into Canaan, the promised land. Joshua is about to lead them. They're about to cross over from the wilderness, cross over the the river Jordan, and possess what God has promised them all along. Hallelujah. So God is speaking to them through his servant Moses at this point, and he's saying, There's some things that you need to know before you go in and possess the land. And in the eighth chapter, here's the first thing that he says. Look with me in verse number two. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known, 
to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, the version I just read to us is actually the New International Version. Some people call it the Nearly Inspired Version. But the reality is it says something a little bit different than the New King James and the King James. It says, remember how the Lord led you these 40 years in the wilderness. It doesn't say, remember that God led you. It says, remember how God led you. So he's saying, I want you to look back in retrospect, and I want you to remember the journey you went through these past 40 years. Because there was a purpose in the journey. God had a reason for them being in the wilderness. And yes, it is true that it was never his intention that they spend 40 years in the wilderness. It was because of their disobedience. But yet, God still took them into the wilderness. In fact, when Moses spoke to Pharaoh, he said, The Lord says, let my people go that they might worship me in the wilderness. Now, a lot of the children of Israel just thought that God was taking them into the promised land. And they didn't really catch this whole thing about the wilderness. It was something that they really didn't understand. But God was going to take them into the wilderness as a necessary prerequisite to be able to promote them into their destiny. So the wilderness is God's plan. How, How many believe that this morning? Just say to your neighbor, the wilderness was God's plan. So, here's what I want you to understand about this journey. The journey that God would take them through in the wilderness had a purpose, had a plan, but ultimately it was to bring them to a destination. And there really are four specific ways in which the children of Israel would experience a change once they crossed the River Jordan and entered into Canaan. Things were going to be very different for them once they crossed that river and came into Canaan. Because in Egypt, they experienced Egypt as literally as the place of not enough. When they would cross over the Jordan into Canaan, they would experience it as a place of more than enough. But the wilderness for the past 40 years was a place of just enough. God says you're crossing over. Things are going to be very different in at least four ways. Number one, they would experience the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Hallelujah. Everything that God had promised to them, they would see the realization of that in their lives. After uh, after Joshua had led them into the promised land, He made this statement in Joshua 21, verses 43 and 45. So the Lord God gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Not a word failed of any good thing that the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Hallelujah. So that's the first uh, realization of what they would experience when they crossed over into Jordan. They would experience the fulfillment of of all of God's covenant promises to them. Secondly, they would experience literally the fullness of all of God's blessings. The Lord told them in Deuteronomy 8, 7 and 9, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce, And you will lack nothing. You will lack nothing. So it's a place where they would experience the fullness of God's covenant blessing. Not only his promises, but the fullness of his provision in their lives. Thirdly, Canaan was the place where they would experience rest from their adversaries. Very clearly, God speaks to them about this in Deuteronomy 12, verse 10. It says, God is going to, is giving, the land God is giving you to inherit, and when you cross over into it, He gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety. It's a place of freedom from their enemies, a place where they would dwell in safety. And lastly, 
it would be a place of habitation, not a place of visitation. In other words, Canaan would be the place where they put down roots and they stop wandering. How many want to stop wandering? How many have been in the wilderness long enough? And God says, when I bring you into Canaan, he said, you will stop wandering. You will rest. You will put down roots and I will establish you and I will build you up and I will prosper you in that place. Now, the journey was a necessary part in God's plan, the process of bringing them into Canaan. But understand this, the wilderness was to be not a place of, of vacation in the sense of, of enjoyment, but it was to be a place nonetheless that they temporarily passed through. In other words, they had to pass through it to go to it. God was saying that the wilderness is a necessary place, but I don't want you to stay there too long. Your ultimate destiny is Canaan. Canaan was to be their vocation place, not their vacation place. Canaan would be the place where they were to dwell. And so when we look at the new covenant and we realize that everything that Israel experienced in the natural is to us something that we are to experience in the spiritual. Because we too are on a journey as God's people. Our journey is not to a geographical location. It's to a place called rest. And it's literally found in the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus told us when he was on the earth in Matthew chapter 11, he was very clear. He said, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, Colossians 2.17 says. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, God says, I gave the children of Israel my Sabbaths that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctifies them. So in other words, the Sabbaths were a type and a shadow pointing to a reality that would be experienced in the new covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. So the rest that God has called you and me to experience will never be attained without having that relationship with Jesus Christ. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, that, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. Now, if Joshua, meaning Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, had succeeded in giving them rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. Think about this. What Israel experienced in the natural, we have experienced, we have been given, we have inherited in the spirit. For us... We have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. God has been faithful. Every promise that he has said to us, the Bible says that they are yes and amen in him, in Christ. He's the one who gives the yes and the amen. That everything that God says is ours by virtue of the new covenant is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Secondly, Jesus has provided for us everything that we have need of. When he sent his disciples out and he said, take no money bag and, you know, don't take an extra change of clothing with you. And they came back and they, re they rejoiced and they reported what the Lord had done. He asked them this question. He said, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing, nothing, nothing at all. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. No matter what it is that we have need of, God has promised to provide for us. Jesus said, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. God is not a liar. God is not a man that he would lie. What he says is true. If for some reason, we are not experiencing the reality of his promises and provision in our life. It is not his fault. But there is a journey that is involved that helps us understand and be prepared to experience everything that he has. Jesus also has given to us freedom from our enemies, a place 
of security to live in Him. In fact, the word Jesus, Yeshua, which is also, it comes from the Hebrew word Yehoshua, which is transliterated Joshua in the, in the Greek language, then we understand this, that what he's talking about literally is a place of freedom. A place of freedom. Because the word Yeshua literally means God delivers. God saves. Now, Matthew one twenty one, You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. He has come to save people from their sins. Israel wanted to be emancipated from the rule of Rome, but Jesus said, no, you don't understand it. The root cause of all oppression and tyranny and everything evil in this life is sin, and I've come to deal with the roots. I've come to pluck up the roots. So he doesn't save us in our sin, he saves us from our sins. And he becomes our deliverer. The word salvation in the New Testament is soteria. The verb form is sozo. Very interestingly, if you study the word sozo, it's used in a variety of ways when speaking of the work of redemption in the New Testament. Number one, sozo is used of forgiveness of sins. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13 We see the spiritual application. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be sozoed. Secondly, it's used of deliverance from demons. Luke chapter 8, verse 36. He who had been demon-possessed was healed, was sozoed. Thirdly, it speaks of psychological wholeness. In other words, Jesus came to give us a sound mind, to heal our emotions, to make us whole. So we don't have to be jacked up anymore. Hallelujah. James 1.21, speaking to Christians, says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Speaking to Christians, Receive the word which is implanted in you. The word is in us, which is able to save your soul. The Greek term is suke, which we get our English word psyche or psychological. So he's dealing with the mind, dealing with our emotions, dealing with our will. No matter what you've gone through in life, no matter how badly you've been hurt or disappointed, no matter what has happened to you mentally, psychologically, Jesus has come to give us a sound mind and to heal our emotions, to give us emotional stability and mental equilibrium. That is his plan in the new covenant. He's come to make us whole in every way. Lastly, the word sozo speaks of healing, of sickness and disease, of infirmities. Of maladies. In James chapter 5, verse 15, we're told the prayer of faith shall sozo the sick, shall save the sick, or shall heal the sick. Hallelujah. What an incredible salvation that we have experienced. That it's a comprehensive deal that God has given to us everything that we need to become whole in every way. I love what Jesus told us to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse number 13, he said, I want you to pray that you would be delivered from evil, or some translations say the evil one. Very interesting. If you do a word study on that term, literally the word evil is poneros in the Greek language. It's a derivative of the word ponos, which means pain. And that word, which which means pain, comes from a root word, which means poor. So Jesus is saying, I want you to pray that you would be delivered from evil. And evil speaks of sin, but it also includes pain and it also includes poverty. That you, because in the beginning when God created all things, there was no lack. They had everything that they needed. I don't know, those of you, if you've ever gone through poverty, I'm talking about real poverty, abject poverty. Where you don't know 
where you're going to, well, you don't have enough food. You don't know how you're going to survive. There are perhaps some people in this room who've gone through that. For the most part, we are foreign to that type of experience in the West. But the reality is, it's an enemy. It's not God's will that we suffer that way. He came to set us free from sin, from Satan, from sickness, and from scarcity. He's come that we might know Him, and we might know Him in the abundance of His goodness. Hallelujah. Now, listen to this. Jesus, John the Baptist's father, is prophesying of the coming of of Messiah. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 74 and 75. When the Messiah comes, he will grant to his people, to the new covenant people, that they would be delivered from the hands of their enemies and that they might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of their life. The plan of God is that we would experience him in his fullness without fear, that we would be able to serve him how many days of our lives? Mm -hmm. So the wilderness is not to be our residence. The wilderness is a place of just enough. It's not the place of more than enough. The wilderness is part of God's plan, but it is a place of visitation, not a place of habitation. Canaan is the place where we're called to live. The wilderness, as I said, has a purpose. The reason for the wilderness is it is a place where God says, I will prepare my people. It's very clear when you read the, the Pentateuch, when you read the, old, the first five books of the Old Testament, that God has a reason for bringing his people into the wilderness. The first reason, why is it that he didn't just take them directly from Egypt to Canaan? If you look at a map from Ramses, Egypt to Canaan, it's literally a straight shot about 250 miles, and it's a journey that could have easily been done on foot, in less than 30 days because there was a super highway that the Romans had built that literally went straight from Egypt into the east. It's a place where God says, I could have taken you quickly, but he specifically says that I'm not going to lead you the easiest, quickest way. Come on now. How many know that God really doesn't care so much about our happiness as he's more concerned about our holiness? Come on now. There's a reason and a purpose for God taking us into the wilderness. Now, let me just explain what he was doing with the children of Israel and how it, how it helps us today. Number one, he did not take them directly to uh, Canaan because they would have had to have traveled through the land of the Philistines. God says, I know if you travel through the land of the Philistines, you will be intimidated. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 and 18. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So God is saying, now remember, these people were slaves for over 400 years, roughly. There was a, a time of slavery for them. And so as slaves, guess what had happened to them? They had been beaten. They had been oppressed. And so now they had their morale was literally in the basement. They, they literally didn't have any resolve, any determination. They had no will to fight. I was ministering in Liberia not too long ago. And one of the things that if you're familiar with Liberia and West Africa, they'd been in a roughly, I think it was about 15 years of civil war. It was very, very evil what had happened. It was clearly rooted in the demonic. I met a, a, a biologist from, from Europe and I was asking him why he was there. And he said, well, we're replenishing the animal population in the forests 
here in Liberia. And I said, well, why did you have to do that? He said, because during the war, because of the war, there's no animals left. And I said, well, what happened to the animals? They said, the people ate them all. Oh. So they literally ate all the animals. And I continued to ask them, and I said, so an election's coming up. Do you think that there's a possibility that civil war could erupt again? And some of the pastors that I was with spoke up as well, and they said, no, we don't think so. Because the people are sick and tired of war. They're sick and tired of fighting. They don't have any more resolve to fight. So the children of Israel had lost the will to fight. They had nothing in them that desired to fight. How many know, however, that there's a time when we must fight? But when the enemy is so beating you down and you have no morale and you have no fortitude at all and you just can't fight, guess what? God knows you're not ready. So what does he do? He takes you into the wilderness to prepare you to fight. The second reason why he took them into the wilderness is not only did they had no will to fight, but they had no skill to fight. As slaves, literally, there was no one among them who had learned warfare. So God said, you, you don't know how to fight. You're not military people. You don't know how to conduct yourself. You don't know how to use weapons of warfare. So I know that there's a time of training that you're going to have to go through. So God says, I'm going to bring you into the wilderness to teach you warfare. The wilderness was going to be their basic training, their boot camp. But the last reason, the most important reason even, why God took them into the wilderness is found in our text in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God says, I led you into the wilderness. It was me. In fact, the Lord says, I'm going to take full responsibility for making you go hungry. Come on now. God says, I'm going to lead you away. You never went. I'm going to cause you to go hungry. I'm going to make you be thirsty. So because there's a reason, there's a purpose in the trial. I'm trying to humble you. I'm trying to bring you to the place where you will recognize and know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's saying, I'm going to shift you from living in the natural to learning how to live in the supernatural. Bread speaks of the natural. It speaks of the earth. God rained down manna from where? Heaven. It speaks of supernatural provision. So God is saying, I am going to prepare you in the wilderness. I'm going to teach you two things while you're in the wilderness. Dependency and sufficiency. You're going to recognize that you don't live by bread. You don't live by the earthly. You don't live by what you can do. But you're going to be taught for a season of time how to depend and trust in me. I'm going to take care of your needs. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to literally cause it. Even your clothes don't wear out. So you're going to learn that you have to trust me. In the wilderness was the place of preparation, the place of training for reigning, of schooling for ruling. It was a place where God said, I'm going to prepare you for what I want to give you. I think I said this last week, but have you ever, I said it somewhere recently. Have you ever seen someone, you know, like a younger person in particular experience an inheritance? They inherit a lot of money, maybe when they're like, you know, 21 years of age. And then they just squander it. Yeah. You know, that's what we'd be like without the wilderness. We would not be prepared for what God has in store for us. Proverbs 20, verse 21 in the New Living Translation says, An inheritance obtained too early in life is not a blessing in the end. God is saying, if I just took you from prophecy to destiny without teaching you dependency and sufficiency, 
you wouldn't be able to handle it. You wouldn't know what to do. You would forget me. In fact, if you read the, the entire context of the verses that we, we've already looked at, he tells them repeatedly in this eighth chapter in Deuteronomy, when you cross over into the land and you prosper and you experience the fullness of my promises and all of the provision that I've told you would be yours, make sure you don't forget the Lord your God. So even after 40 years of learning how to depend upon God, of seeing God lead them and and take them through the wilderness, he still admonishes them. He finds it necessary to warn them to make sure you don't forget me. When Israel was in the wilderness, not only did they have to depend upon God, Not only did they have to learn that literally he was their sufficiency, they didn't need God plus. They needed God, you know. It's amazing how sometimes you say to people, well, you know, God, just pray. Just look to God and they go, well, God and, you know, God and. Like, there's no God and. There's no plan B. It's God. Jesus is our sufficiency. In Him we live and move and we have our being. The Bible says that He will provide all of our need according to His riches and glory. In Christ. It's in Christ. Everything we need is in Him. And He gives us more than what the world could give us or what we could do for ourselves. Because the Bible says the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And it says He adds no sorrow to it. The word sorrow means painful toil. When we secure our own blessings and things look good, I want to tell you, there's a lot of painful toil to it. But when God blesses us, it is a blessing that causes us to experience His goodness in our lives. And there's not a lot of pain. There's not a lot of of things that we have to do in terms of striving in, in order to maintain it. Because, see, what happens is if we birth something, we are responsible to sustain it. But when we receive a blessing, God is responsible. Because it's He is the originator. He is the initiator. And He's the one who ensures that what He has promised what he has begun, he will bring... Bundling car and renter's insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. So why not ask? Just say, Hey, did you get your hair cut? It looks cool. Also, have you saved even more by bundling with GEICO? Or maybe, Hey, did you get your hair cut? It looks weird. Uh, not weird, cool. Anyway, have you bundled with GEICO? Or try, Hey, did you get your hair cut? It doesn't look weird at all. Anywho, have you saved by bundling with... Hey, easy with that rake. Bundling is easy. Easy with Geico. Just ask your neighbors. To completion. Oh, hallelujah. I am definitely preaching better than you are amening me. When Israel was in the wilderness, do you understand what God was doing? He was teaching them rest. He was teaching them rest. You see, they thought that rest would be the place of Canaan. And it was in the sense that it was the consummation. But there was a work of rest that they had to experience in their lives, in their hearts first, before they would experience it in their pocketbooks, in their bodies, in every other way. See, if you look at the Old Testament... And you understand rest. Rest doesn't mean being passive, being inactive. Not at all. Because Canaan, there were even battles in Canaan. But the reality is, rest is coming to a place where we learn to depend upon God so that we don't take matters into our own hand. We learn that His grace is sufficient. His way is enough. His word is is true, and we can trust Him with everything in life. And when we learn that, guess what happens? We learn to follow Him. Israel camped around the presence of God in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of learning to trust in God's sufficiency, depending in His sufficiency, but it's also the place 
of learning how to walk in His presence. In Exodus 33, verse 14, God says, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Without the presence of God, there's no rest. Learning how to walk in the presence means we learn how to host the presence of God. We learn how to live in the presence of God. We learn how to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. We don't do things on our own initiative or our own accord, but we allow God to lead us. It's amazing how many Christians will say things that are really worldly philosophies and they try to attribute its origin to the Scripture. Like, for example, God helps those that help themselves. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Scripture. Tell that to so many people that got themselves in a mess because they didn't wait upon God. They didn't follow His leading. Think of Ishmael. Think of King Saul. They ran ahead of God. We see Abraham and Ishmael. They ran ahead of God. See, it's a place where we follow His leading. Like Jesus who said in John 5, 19, He said, I can do nothing of my own, but what I see the Father do, so I do likewise. It's a place of following the presence of God. When we learn how to live in the presence of God, then we experience rest. When we learn how to depend upon His grace, then we learn to experience rest. When we don't take matters into our own hands, and when we seek God for understanding and revelation, and wait for Him to show us the way in which to go, then we experience rest. When you experience rest, when I experience rest, you understand that we experience the fullness of God's salvation for us. Everything that we've talked about that Canaan typifies. The New International Version says in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In repentance and rest is salvation. Do you want to experience the fullness of God's salvation? Spirit, soul, mind, body, materially, everything that He's promised you? Then you have to walk in rest. Powerful scripture in Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 11. It says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Think about that. That's, that's paradoxical, isn't it? Let us be diligent. Let's work hard to enter rest. Why is it that God says to us we have to work hard to enter rest? Because our human nature wants to do things by our own volition, We want to be in charge of our lives. We want to take matters into our own hands. We want to be the captain of our faith. But the reality is God says, no, 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 that's not the way of the kingdom. You have to learn to depend upon me. And he says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 10, look at this. He who has entered his rest, meaning God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from His. When you enter His rest, you cease from your works. Does that mean that as Christians we just sit back and are lazy and do nothing? Let the world go to hell? No, not at all. The Bible is clear that we are called to good works. Philippians 2, verse number 13 says, verse number 12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is a work that God has called us to do. Even though we are not saved by works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Ephesians 2, 10 says that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to walk in good works. That we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. What does it mean? It means this. The word prepare is a very interesting term. 
in the New Testament. There's two words that are translated prepared. The one speaks of an external preparation, but the other one speaks of an internal preparation. The latter is used in Ephesians 2, verse 10. And he's saying that God has prepared us internally. Do you know what that means? It means that he's dropped the spiritual GPS in us. He's put a GPS in us so that we can hear his voice and we can follow his leading. He already has it planned what he wanted you to do with your life. He knows exactly everything. Read Psalm 139. But he's saying, I want to show you the way. Whether you turn to the left or you turn to the right, Isaiah said, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. God wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to be led by the Spirit. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And a lot of times the reason why things fail in life is because God has not sanctioned it as part of His plan for us. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. I'll show you the way. I want you to trust me in such a way that you will live in my presence, that you'll follow me. Where I am, there my servant is also, Jesus said. That you will go where I am. You will move where I'm moving. You will follow my Holy Spirit. He is a GPS to lead us in the way that God has planned for our lives. So we do those works. Jesus said, my Father's working and I'm working. We do those works. But they're not our works. They're His works. On earth as it is in heaven. What God is doing, we do. Now, I know this is profound. I know this is deep. But I think we can get this. There is a place in the new covenant where we walk by faith, not by sight. As Christians, many of us, we walk by sight, not by faith. If we don't, if we can't map it out, if we can't, you know, plan it, if it doesn't make sense to us, We're not going there. God says, I want you to follow me. I'll lead you. I want you to walk by faith. I want you to hear my voice. Faith is the evidence of things. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith perceives as reality that which is not revealed to the senses. What does that mean? (laughs) In the book of Jude... The writer speaks of false teachers, and he said, Such men are sensual, having not the Spirit. Think about that. These false teachers, he says, they're sensual, having not the Spirit. They're void of the Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying that they live according to their senses. That's what a sensual person is. You live according to your senses. You walk by sight, not by faith. If we were to truly live all the days of our life by what looks good, what sounds good, what seems logical, we'll never enter into the promises of God. We'll never experience the victories and the breakthroughs that we need. We've got to learn to walk by faith where we hear what God says. Everybody says, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says, he's just sleeping. Everyone says, Sarah, you can't have a child. You're too old. It's, it's physically, physiologically impor- impossible. And God says, I say those things, I call those things that are not as if they are. I will cause you to experience what I said in my word. When I have spoken to you and given you a promise, it is up to you to contend. It is up to you to follow my voice. It is up to you to follow me and to believe what I've said. Let God be true and every man a liar. If he says it, he'll do it. He's faithful. But he's looking for people that will stand, a people that will believe, a people that will say, yes, God, you're true. Your word shall come to pass in my life. And I know that it's your will. And when we learn to depend upon him, we rest in his presence. Then guess what happens? God causes us to experience restoration. Think about it. 
Take the word restoration. Delete the first four letters. Rest. What do you have? Nothing. Oration. What's that? See, there is no re- there's no restoration without rest. Now, I'm not just, you know, playing words here, semantics. I want you to understand this is a scriptural principle. How do I know this? Because in the Hebrew economy, every seven years, the Bible says the land was to rest. Correct? They call that the Shemitah year. But at the end of seven cycles of seven years, there's something called the year of Jubilee. Now, what happens is at the end of the seventh year, the Shemitah year, God says, here's what you do. The land rests. But at the, at the beginning, that entire seventh year, God says the land rests. Don't plow. Don't sow. Do nothing. Don't harvest. The land rests. And what happens? At the end of the seven years, it says in Deuteronomy 15 that debts were to be forgiven. Now, that's the end of the Shemitah year. So understand this. Rest, then restoration. The year of Jubilee is not only are debts canceled, but property is returned and slaves are emancipated. But that time, the year rests. Why? Because God is saying, without rest, there's no restoration. Rest precedes restoration. A lot of us, we we get ourselves in a position where we don't know what to do. And rather than our first and natural response being going to God and waiting to hear from Him, we take matters into our own hands and we may be able to put a band-aid on it for a season. We might be able to give, you know, a temporary fix and patch on this situation. But if we keep living this way, we're never going to experience the breakthrough that God has for us. Yes, you can survive in the wilderness. You can have what you want in the wilderness. But God wants you to have not just enough, but more than enough. He wants you not to coexist with your enemies, but he wants you to experience all of his promises. Freedom, deliverance, healing, prosperity, all of the blessings that he's promised in his word. But you've got to learn to rest so that you can come out of the wilderness and move into your destiny. And the sooner we learn the lesson, the shorter the time we'll spend in the wilderness. Thank you, Lord. Oh, hallelujah. Deuteronomy 8.16 says this. God says, I fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know. That I, he might humble, that I might humble you and test you. Listen to this. To do you good in the end. To do you good in the end. The purpose of the wilderness is to prepare a people for a profusion of his blessings. And as I said before, sometimes the more powerful the promotion, the more profound the preparation process. God is saying, I'm raising up a people in this hour, a people that will understand that what I did at the cross was enough. I said it is finished. I've given you all things pertaining to life and godliness. I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing. You need to believe my word. You need to go in and possess the land. What I've already given to you, I've told you it's yours. You can come out of the wilderness the moment you learn to depend upon me and trust in my sufficiency and be led by my presence. Folks, religion will not bring you out of the wilderness. Going to church on Sunday will not bring you out of the wilderness. Putting of some money in the offering will not take you out of the wilderness. It is a life that God is calling us into. A life where we trust Him, we depend upon Him, and we learn to walk in His presence and be led by His Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, let's praise Him. Let's give Him praise. Come on, let's... Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah.
Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your plans and your purpose for our lives. We thank you for restoration. You know, the year in the Hebrew calendar, 5775, is what we're currently in, and it's a Shemitah year. But the good thing about God, about Jesus, is every year is a Shemitah year with Jesus. Do you know that? Every year is a Shemitah year, is a year of Jubilee with Jesus. When he stood up in Luke chapter 4, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, in verse number 18 and 19. And he said, Because he's anointed me to preach good news. And he talked about setting the captives free and bringing people out of prison. He said, And to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He was talking about the year of Jubilee. It is the acceptable year of the Lord. Or once some translations say, The year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is now. God's angry with me. Well, guess what? Even if he is, his mercy endures forever. Come before him. Humble yourself. And he said, I will not remain angry with my people. He said, I will forgive you. I will cast off your sins. Throw them into the sea. The bottomless sea. I think it was Corey Ten Boom said years ago, when God throws our sins into the sea of forgetfulness, then he puts up a no fishing sign. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He forgives us. He's so good. Can we stand together? Let's stand together in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I don't know if the worship team, Pastor uh, Matt, can you just lead us in... In a, in a song here, I just want to just enter into a time of worship. This morning, my word of encouragement to you is to remember this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of restoration. This is the time when you can enter in and possess all that He's promised you. Enter rest. Cease from your works. Cease just trying to do it your way. Come on now, this isn't Burger King. This is the kingdom of God. You can't have it your way. Jesus is a king. He's not a prime minister or a president. You can't elect him or re-elect him or vote him out. He's king for life. And he wants you to know that he's a good king. And he has a plan for you. The Bible says the way of the sinner is hard. You know, when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting Christians, Jesus shows up and appears to him on the road to Damascus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not easy for you to kick against the goats. He was saying this at the, at the back of a, you know, in the front of a, of a, a cart. There's something what they called goats. And they were like sharp sticks that stuck out. And if the oxen decided they were going to kick, guess what? They hurt themselves. It was a futile endeavor. And God is saying, when you resist my will, when you balk against my plans for your life, you're kicking against the goads. And it's not easy to kick against the goads. In other words, you're just hurting yourself. Why are you hurting yourself? Why is it that you won't yield to the Holy Ghost? Why is it that you keep running? Let me tell you, you can't run from a God who's already there where you're going. He's already there. You can't run from Him. No matter what you try, He's there. He's with you. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So you might as well just lay it down at the cross. You might as well just surrender your life. You might as well stop striving and be still and know that He is God. He said, I will lead you in the way that is best for you. I will lead you in the way that is best for your life if you trust me. We're going to just worship the Lord for a moment. While we are, if you feel that this message is spoken to your heart, God is calling you to that place of rest. I want to ask you just to come and stand at the front. Just stand there, begin to worship, connect with the Lord spiritually. And let's just see what the Holy Spirit does in this place this morning. If you're here this morning and you've been running from God, we tell you it's a futile endeavor. You can't outrun God. You might as well give up.
you might as well give up and experience his love and grace. You might as well let him have his way in your life. Because the pleasures of sin are just for a season. Lay it down and experience joy, righteousness, and peace for eternity. Lay it down and enter into rest. Lay it down. If you're here today and you say, yes, I've been running from God, I want you to come and stand at the front right now as well. Because we're going to just see the Holy Ghost do something awesome in this place today. In the name of Jesus. Is it time to sow? And it's time to reap? Would you do it again? Do it again. Is it time to heal? And it's time to mend? Would you do it again? about a yoke. He said, my yoke is light. My, burden, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's not to say that there isn't responsibility. There isn't work. There is. But it's, it's not something that's going to put you in the grave when you're doing things God's way. His presence will give you rest. 
is present. Sometimes it's the weight we're carrying. Sometimes it's how we're carrying the weight because we're doing it in our own lives, in our own strength. But understand that there's a place of rest that God's calling His people into. It's a place where you experience all that Canaan was a type and shadow of. You experience it all. You experience the fulfillment of His promises. You experience the fullness of His provision. You experience peace and security from your enemies. You live there as a place of perpetual blessing. It's not just a place where you visit, but Canaan land is a place you're supposed to live. It's your place of habitation and residence. Come on now, what kind of God would He be? He just said, you know, I don't. He doesn't want weekend visitation rights. He's not that type of dad. He wants soul custody. He wants access to us 24-7. That's what He has. He wants to live with us. He wants us to live with Him. That's His plan. And I challenge you today as you go in the name of Jesus that this message would burn in your heart and you would make the necessary corrections and adjustment in your life to live in that place of rest. Just before we go, I'm going to pray for you. But just before I even do that, I just want to ask everyone in this building if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment, please. I know there are people here today. You've been running from God. You've been rebelling against God. But I want to tell you, He loves you. He has a plan for your life. And He's here to forgive you. And not only just forgive you, but He's going to make all things new, is what He said in His, he says in his Word. I want to just ask you, if you're here today and you say, yes, I'm not right with Jesus... I need to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I need to stop running from God and begin following God. If you're here this morning, would you just lift up your hand so I can pray for you before you leave? Amen. Put your hand up. Hold it up for a moment so I can look around. See those hands? See those hands? Anybody else? Yes. I need to stop running from God. Start running to God. Just put your hand up. I want to pray for you. If you put your hand up today, you can put your hand down now. Thank you. Would you just pray with me? Everybody in this place, just say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that God raised you from the dead. Because you paid the price with your blood so that the sins of all people can be forgiven. And whoever believes in you, whoever trusts in you, you said you will, you will raise them up. You will forgive them. You will make all things new. And I thank you for forgiving me. Because I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's been raised from the dead. And I confess this with my mouth. Now, right now, Father, I receive. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your grace. I receive newness of life. I receive all things. I thank you for a fresh start. I thank you for a new day. I thank you for a new life. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's give the Lord a clap. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yes, Jesus. Hallelujah. I want to pray. I want to pray for every person that is here this morning. And you just said, yes, I I want to come to that place of entering rest so that I can experience the fullness of my salvation. In repentance and rest is salvation. Remember that. So I want to come to that place. I want to just pray for you. So just say with me, would you say, Jesus. It's not my way. It's not my will. You know what's best. And I submit. And I say, lead me. Speak to me. I thank you for your promise. As I learn to walk in your presence, as I renew my commitment to seek you, to pray, to get into your word, to open my spirit I know you're going to speak to me 
I know you're going to lead me. I thank you, Lord, that you're bringing me to a place where I learn the lessons of the wilderness so that I can move into my destiny and experience the fullness of the new covenant in the name of Jesus. Come on, give him a clap. Introducing Venture X, Capital One's new travel card for people always asking, Where next? You earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars, and 5x miles on flights booked through Capital One Travel, and 2x miles on everything else you buy with Venture X. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.